My name is Christian Ashley, a seminary student and servant of God, and you are listening to the Let Nothing Move You podcast, a proud Anazal Ministries podcast. Welcome back, everyone, to the Let Nothing Move You podcast. I'm your host, Christian Ashley, and we are at the end of the Gospel of Luke. 24 chapters in, 24 episodes devoted to this alone outside of, you know, uh, guest shots I've done in the whole church and stuff like that. <clears throat> Quite the achievement. I am so happy we've made our way here. Thank you all for sticking with me as we go through Luke, and I'll explain at the end of the show where we're going from here to those of you who don't know. But other than that, uh, as far as housekeeping goes, I would like you all to go to the Basically Biblical podcast if you have a chance. That's uh, I mentioned a while back that I was going to be on an episode there, and I was on an episode with Jesse Lucas, the founder and host of the show, and we discussed predestination, free will, and of course, Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse. <laughs> it was a ton of fun. Uh, what Jesse does with his YouTube channel as well, he has a, the podcast form and the YouTube channel. You can go check out both. They're basically biblical. And so so what he does is he splits them up into parts. I think mine's going to end up being three parts because two have been released so far. Go check it out. I had a great conversation with the guy. I really love working with him. I'll definitely be back for something else he's planning on doing later on, too. So really enjoyed doing that. So as I mentioned earlier, we'll be going into the book of Luke today. And of course, we'll be going to chapter 24, starting with verses 1 through 12. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. And they found a stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but he has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise? And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. This right here... <clears throat> Is what it's all about, people. Jesus came back to life. After three days, no one has resurrected themselves over the course of history. Jesus alone had that power to come back for all of our sakes to save us from ourselves and our sins. And that's exactly what we see here. Let's look at that tomb real quick. Remember earlier, uh, we do have a stone there in front of the tomb. This was typically done as a means to prevent, I mean, obviously didn't, didn't really understand bacterial infection and stuff like that, but they had an association, oh, corpses bring bad things. So they didn't want the smell coming out. That's why, you know, people, when they did visit, would give perfume and spices and stuff like that to show a little respect for the body, but also for their noses. Because, you know, corpses don't exactly make for great arrangements in the house, even when they're underground. So that's why they would do what they do, including putting this stone there. Now, this stone would be about, uh, depending on who you ask, it's any, anywhere from one ton to two tons, and that's 2,000 to 4,000 pounds. It is that heavy 
and would require at least two men to move it without immense strain on a singular mover. It is possible for one guy to do it, but it's going to be, he's going to be in the best shape of his life is kind of the point. You don't just want anyone to do this. In the book of Matthew, we see that Pilate has taken the time to command soldiers to guard this tomb to prevent anyone from stealing the body. Many skeptics will say that Jesus's disciples overpowered the guards and stole the body to spread stories of Jesus being resurrected. While it is possible that this could have happened, let us remember the disciples' last attempt to defend Jesus, where Peter went after an unarmed servant instead of the people who could give him problems. The disciples were not trained fighters. Outside of maybe Simon the Zealot, I mean, the Zealot part uh, kind of implies he was part of the Zealots, which were a group of terrorists trying to regain freedom for the Jewish people. And they did a lot of despicable things, not only to the Romans, but also to the Jewish people as well. So he may have had some, but as a whole, they don't. We see in the Gospels there a bunch of fearful men who were so afraid that they were going to die next. These people are not the people I would choose if I'm making a history of this and say, okay, our, our premise is the lie that Jesus was risen out of the tomb. Well, how that happened? Well, his disciples came. And they got him out. I need better disciples than these because these jokers ain't cutting it. Like the very idea that these idiots having the have the audacity and courage to overcome the guards together for the sake of a cause that they were having doubts about is ludicrous. Even if, like we see in Matthew, that the false excuse of the guards being asleep is brought up, the disciples were still not trained ninjas, assassins, or spies who would somehow be able to move a two-ton rock without making a noise and extract a corpse at the same time. Look, I'd have to have even more faith than I possess to think that many leaps of logic could work. And that's what people are trying to do because they want to disprove this. Because if this happens, something's got to be done about their lives. Because Jesus is who he said he is. Because once again, no one can resurrect themselves. No one can come back from the dead without there being something to it. Let's also look at the women here. They continue to showcase their love for Jesus and loyalty to the cause, but then they go the extra mile and get the men who should have been with them, but didn't because their faith was on life support. And then the women encouraged them with the news that Jesus had risen. Like oftentimes in scripture and oftentimes in history, let's just be honest, God will use the people we least suspect of being capable as the ones he wants to do his good works in the world. He chooses idiots like Gideon. He chooses idiots like Peter. Nobodies to do his grand purpose in the world. And these women, outside of a couple of verses, we don't really know that much about them. But they alone were the first ones to know about the resurrection of Jesus because they were faithful and they were rewarded for their faith by God. There are plenty of people in our churches right now who are doing his work without bringing attention to themselves, but they need to be called out for their faith and devotion to God because they are doing the work behind the scenes to help keep the church running. How many times has someone praised one of the teachers in preschool or even higher in the children's education or a small group leader or something like that? Or the person who just makes sure everything is clean. The person who makes sure that there are fresh you know, sweets and drinks in the morning for people to just enjoy before service and after service. Like, 
How many times do they get thanked? Because they keep the church running. If the women had kept this news to themselves, Jesus would still have met the disciples, and his mission would be completed before he ascended to heaven after he established his spiritual kingdom on earth. But the story is heightened by the resolve and loyalty shown by Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of Jesus, and the others with them, because we see that their faith is rewarded even if their stories were not initially believed. Can you imagine that? You see this. Two angels speak to you, and 11 people who should have known better than anyone else don't believe you. But even in their doubt, Peter did go. And you see in John that John went as well. And he saw it empty. He marveled at it, but he still wasn't there yet when it came to his faith. People will often ask for miracles and for signs because they say that's what it's going to take for them to believe. But if we look at scripture, if we look at life, very rarely does conversion happen as a result of witnessing a miracle. Unless that miracle is also accompanied by the words of a prophet, disciple, missionary, or Jesus himself. And even they don't always bring people to faith. We've seen throughout this entire book how many times Jesus had had the most cogent and amazing arguments. And no one believes him. Not even the people who spent all that time with him. Look, these people, like Herod, that uh, we saw earlier, like they're going to claim that this would change their lives. But remember how many miracles the people saw earlier, yet how many of them came to faith as a result of them? How many people said, man, Jesus, you created all these loaves of bread and these fish. And like, that's Im impossible. It's supernatural. They noted that, but then they ate and left. Maybe there's some people in that crowd who came to faith. Sure. But think of the majority that didn't. We just lie to ourselves and think, oh, no. If I saw something, if I saw a miracle, I would know for sure. Then I'd be his. No, we wouldn't. No, we wouldn't. We've seen plenty of miracles in our own lives. We just don't like to call them that. We don't like to call them that. Say, the fact that some of us are alive right now. Do you know how many stupid things I've done as a kid? I should not be alive right now. And I'm way, I'm nowhere near as bad as my dad was when he was a kid. The fact that that man is alive and then was able to have me later on is a testament to God's power and, <laughs> and mercy on this world. That doesn't deserve it. All these miracles keep happening around us, but we refuse to see them for what they are, and we refuse to give the glory and honor to him. We need to change that about ourselves. Like, Peter needed to see physical proof of Jesus' disappearance, and this is good. God does not call us to be ignorant and passive in our walk with him. Rather, he desires us to be emboldened to ask questions and discern the truth for ourselves. Let's also focus real quick on how the disciples are also called apostles here. They've been called that before uh, in Luke. I can't remember exactly when. I want to say it's like when he's calling them out. I, I can't remember, but it's been done. Uh, let's get a clarification here real quick. A disciple is a student or learner who studies under a teacher. An apostle is the messenger of that teacher who spreads their message to those around them. The 11 apostles remaining were directly taught by Jesus as his disciples but would soon be called to do the job themselves without his direct oversight, which makes them apostles. Jesus had many disciples, but few apostles that he chose to lead his church. In Acts, we will see Matthias, uh, Matthias and Paul would later be counted as apostles, which showed Jesus' dire Jesus's direct roles in teaching them. Right, we got a long segment here, going through Luke 24, 13, all the way to 35. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all the things that had happened. 
While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, uh, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? <laughs> I love how Jesus just lets people bear themselves deeper. And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed, and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped he, that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since such things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning. And when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe, all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them and all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he was going further. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were open, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while we while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them and the breaking of the bread. So let's start with how Jesus approaches this issue. These are two disciples separate from the eleven who are on their way back to Emmaus from Jerusalem, and he chooses not to reveal himself in a way that kind of says that he has some supernatural power to like either shade his appearance or take on the appearance of someone else or cloud their vision to where they probably see something, but they don't fully understand it. Regardless, he's able to do it in a way that they don't know it's Jesus, and they should know because they are disciples. And what does he do? He tests them engages their reactions to him, of which they initially fail. They call Jesus a prophet, mighty, and the one to redeem Israel. All of these things are objectively true, but they are some of the least important aspects of Jesus's true character. They did not believe yet in the stories that they had heard of Jesus being resurrected. Yet, Jesus took the time to come to them personally and reveal his true nature to them. Even when we doubt and misrepresent God, he will still love us and remain by our side, while also chastising us in a loving manner for our failings. This is a beautiful story of Jesus' love for his followers, and he continues that love by further explaining the matters where these disciples had some deficiencies in their theology. A good teacher will do the same. Because what a good teacher will desire is that their students fully understand what they're saying. They don't want just someone to regurgitate information. They want someone to retain it and then apply it. God will likewise not abandon us when we truly desire to seek him and understand him, like these disciples did even in the midst of their temporary apostasy. 
We also see that Jesus even attempts to give them an out from the conversation. But because these disciples really do wish to seek him, they pursued him, even while not fully understanding who he was until he chose to reveal his true self to them after breaking bread with them. Oftentimes, we're going to have situations in life where it just feels like oh, we can't see God in, his, in actions or deeds or words or around us at all. But he reminds us, with, even when our eyes are clouded, he remains with us. And he will choose to reveal his true love towards us when the time is right. Like, and when they've learned this information, they don't keep it to themselves. That's the good news. You don't keep the good news to yourself. You don't bottle it up. You got to tell someone. So they went to the apostles and told them their story, which is yet another small gift Jesus offered towards them in their temporary apostasy to help them understand him before he came back to see them personally. There is so much to glean from this section of scripture right here of how Jesus approaches us as followers in a loving manner. He rightfully could have just said, you idiots didn't believe me. I'm going to take the ones who did. And you're banned, you're barred from the kingdom, kingdom of heaven. But he didn't. He knew as humans were weak, were frail. Sometimes we need to be reminded of who he is. And that's okay. Because guess what? We are weak and frail spiritually, yet he is strong and dependent and capable. And he is always there for us, just like he was there for these men who didn't recognize him in their presence, despite being his students. It's that weird thing, this this veil that sometimes, a spiritual veil over someone's eyes of not being able to see the truth, even when it's right in front of you. We've talked about this a couple of times before, I think. But it exists. It is a thing of sometimes the truth can be spoken to someone and it's like you're talking to a blank wall. But Jesus didn't let it stay there for these men, knowing that they would be the ones to come to him if more was explained to them. Sometimes that's what we need to do as well. Sometimes we need to give up. It's all about discerning when and where to do those things and how for the ultimate goal of making disciples and spreading his love to the world to a world that has no love within itself. We'll move on from there to 36 through 49. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet. That is, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything to eat here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate before them. Then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. 
but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Some people, when they're going over the resurrection of Jesus, will try and say those who are skeptics, those who are disbelieving, that he didn't die on the cross. And instead, he went into some kind of uh, coma from you know, the stress of everything, or he merely just appeared dead. And they said, oh, well, he's bled enough. He's surely dead. And then they just tossed him into the tomb. This is certainly possible, at least initially, if you, if you think about it. Like, it is possible for someone to have suffered that immense amount of pain and anguish and just be unconscious and look like they're dead, pretty much act like they're dead for all they know, because guess what? Probably not a lot of doctors around checking vitals at this point in time. And certainly uh, there have been people who've been crucified that probably survived and were thrown away and unfortunately probably got entombed to death and didn't survive after that. But let us recall, Jesus took on a little more than your average person being crucified. He was whipped, beaten, had a crown of thorns on his head. He was nailed to a cross, and he was left severely underfed and dehydrated. If he were to survive all of that, which once again is possible, he would then have to not have gotten infected from his open wounds, nor die of blood loss or lack of nutrients in the three days he spent underground. Now, now I don't know about you. Uh, it is so easy for me to get sick sometimes. A lot worse. I'm a lot worse than I was when I was younger. I get, you know, a cut and I apply bandages and suddenly, oh, I have a fever the next day. It's real bad. It's kind of kind of sad, really, compared to how my immune system used to be. So you're going to tell me that I, after suffering one cut, I'm going to end up in that terrible situation. But the one Jesus here who has suffered all that does not suffer medically immensely assuming, of course, that he didn't die on the cross in this scenario. I don't buy it. Like, yeah, once again, let me let me go through those things again. He, he would have to have not gotten infected from his open wounds, nor would he have died of blood loss or lack of nutrients in the three days he spent underground. Once again, possible. But is it probable? I would say nay. If we are to assume that Jesus does get out of here in this situation, uh, we'll get to that in a second. Okay, so uh, so we need to figure out how he got out of the tomb in this wounded state, because in that situation, he's not suddenly going to hulk out and then move the stone himself. Like, he's not... <laughs> it's ridiculous to think that he could do it himself. So, surely. Okay, let's cross that one off the list. Okay, so let us assume, and there's a lot of assumptions here, the disciples are somehow competent enough to overpower the guards and retrieve Jesus. And then what becomes our question? They have a near-death leader who obviously hasn't conquered death, looking as sad and pathetic and near-death as a human being possibly can. If they bring him out to the people proclaiming that he conquered death like he claimed, then they'd be laughed out of the city and the entire religious movement destroyed. So we're left to think, oh, that can't be the answer. Jesus can't have survived on the cross and lived for three days in a dark damp environment, far away from any medical help or food or anything else or water that he needs to survive. So where does it leave us? Well, he either died and they lied about it, or we see Jesus standing triumphant over his injuries, 
like he does to the apostles here. We see Jesus coming back to his best friends and arguably some of his worst followers. While others had reported back on the good news of his recovery, they were still in hiding, fearing reprisal from the Pharisees. Yet Jesus doesn't hold this against them. And instead, he offers them the physical proof that they need to believe in him. By doing this, he prevents them from thinking that he's a ghost and is, in fact, fully resurrected, choosing to have them touch his wounds and to eat in their presence to confirm his bodily resurrection. Look, some people need more evidence than others to believe in Christ and what he represents. This is not their fault. In fact, sometimes it's a really good thing. It simply means they require more than what we have currently provided them with. What this should do is it should force us to be better stewards of our ability to evangelize and to fully flex our apologetics muscles, even when this means that we don't bring that person to Christ. I said it before, like there have been plenty of times in my life when I have been on my A game, like like this is what I would use as a highlight reel of how I'm supposed to be evangelized to someone. And the person I was speaking to didn't believe. It was like that, that veil was over their eyes. Like I could swear I could almost see it clouding their vision, clouding their hearing, clouding their sight. It's easy to get discouraged in that moment. But success in evangelism isn't always measured by conversion. For all we know, we planted the seed that someone else will water and grow years from now. The point in that moment is that we are being faithful to him in speaking of him to others. In John's gospel, we see that Thomas doesn't trust the word of the women, the disciples, and his fellow apostles until he himself sees Jesus. There is absolutely nothing wrong to an extent with this line of thinking. For too long in the church, and in the world, the fact that we have the phrase doubting Thomas is proof of that. For too long, he has been given as an example through phrases like doubting Thomas as someone who doesn't believe without personally examining the evidence for themselves. Yet, where were the rest of the disciples before this moment in time? Exactly where he was until they saw Jesus and met with him personally after the resurrection. Trusting something simply because someone says it is, because uh, someone says it is true, is precisely why there are dangers in our lives right now, coming from pe uh, places that would claim to be churches. Uh, we have things like the right, the left. We have the uneducated, the educated, and the news. Like because simply people believe and go, oh well, this MSNBC says this, you know, C-SPAN says this, Fox News says this. Oh, therefore, I believe it. My pastor said this. Oh, my pastor said that. Therefore, I believe it. That's not good enough. A lot of the time, if your pastor, your pastor, your pastor has proven over time that they know what they're talking about, chances are I'm going to believe what they have to say. But there still comes a time when you need to verify things on your own. I don't just trust every scientific journal I've ever read, even though a lot of them if they're doing their jobs well, which most of them do, they're being peer-reviewed by other people to make sure that things and results are done correctly. But I don't trust every single one. I verify. I go, okay, they say this. What does this test say? What does this article say? 
And then when you start to see a lot of evidence piling up that a lot of people are saying the same thing, they're reaching similar results, you can most likely say it's true as far as we're aware of. That is a good thing to do. I don't just believe the words coming out of whatever app or whatever news station I'm listening to or whatever church I'm at simply because they say it. Not because I'm some ultra skeptic who doesn't want to believe in anything, but because I want to know the truth. The disciples, the apostles, Thomas, they needed to know the truth. We do not simply believe in Jesus's resurrection because we were told about it. And if you do, we need to have a talk. We believe in him coming back to life because it is the truth and has been verified by evidence and trusted eyewitnesses. This story is true because of what we have working for it. We need to go. Okay, what do people stand to gain from this? Is it power, money, authority? Well, let's look at the rest of the disciples' lives. We've been through them before. Oh, by the way, they all get horrifically murdered, except for John, who ends up you know, exiled on the island to die at old age. That tells me, oh, well, it must not be for money. It must not be for status. It must not be because they're, they're just radicalized. It tells me because they believe in something that changed their lives. And that thing is the resurrection. These people are losers before the resurrection. They continue to have their loser moments later on, but it's a different time. They are way different people later on in Acts than they are in the Gospels because something happened. Proof of who Jesus is happened. And look, like, not everyone needs to be an apologetics master when it comes to this stuff. Like, you don't need to have... Um, now, there's been tons of books written on the subject of you know, evidence of you know the cross and the resurrection, or you've had lawyers look into it. You've had uh, crime analysts, you had policemen, judges, all that go into it and write books on the subject outside of Christian authors as well, and go, man, this had to have happened because they look at the evidence and they don't bring their biases into it. They look at the truth. We need to do the same. The same. Sorry, that list was really hurting me today. Look, like I said, you don't need to be an apologetics master. But every Christian should know enough to answer when questioned on why we believe what we believe. If you don't know, that's okay. Work on it. Ask questions. Do your research. Get to where you know enough to where you feel secure. If I'm in this conversation, I can say this. And if there's a question I can't answer, I know someone who can, or if I don't know if they can, I know someone they might know. Get to that point. It's going to be monumentally helpful for the remainder of your life. Learn how to trust things. Learn when the news should be trusted. Learn when a scientific journal should be trusted. Learn when the Bible should be trusted. Don't just believe because someone said to. That's how we got into the current situation we are in America right now. I, I would dare say the world as well. The Bible is not a creation of man. It has not been perverted and twisted into saying something beyond its original intent, and it is certainly not the ravings of bad men. It is the truth. And because it is the truth, that should change you and me. I'll finish off the Gospel of Luke. Hard to believe I'm saying that. With verses 50 through 53. And he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. 
And they worshipped him and returned to, to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. Luke ends his gospel with Jesus' ascension into heaven, which he will expound upon in Acts, but we're not going there yet. Jesus needed to return to heaven because his original task of dying for our sins and establishing his kingdom on earth for good was done. That's where we come in. He didn't need to stay behind and micromanage. The changes we see in the disciples from weak and pathetic men of little faith and knowledge into bold and rational men of truth, intelligence, and wisdom does not happen without Jesus coming back to, to life and changing their lives for the better. Learn from this and follow their example. He is risen, and we are forever saved from death, destruction, hell, and ourselves because of him. Hallelujah. We are done with the Gospel of Luke, guys. Um, I'm so glad I chose to do this. I've had so much fun. I've enjoyed everyone's feedback, uh, your criticisms as well. I'm always open to that. Uh, continue as well. Uh, just uh, let me know how you feel about the show. Just leave a five-star rating uh, on your podcasting platform of choice just to help with the, the ratings, and, uh, excuse me, the boosting us to let other people see us. If you're interested in my fiction writing, you can find my works at starvingwritersguild.com or on Amazon by searching for the name MC Ashley. If you're all interested in some further solid studies into the Bible and its teachings, then check out the other members of the Anazal Ministries Podcasting Network. You can contact me at letnothingmoviepodcast at gmail.com. I'd like to extend a special thank you to Joshua Knoll for the editing that he does and for the music that he adds to the podcast. So, future. Next time, we'll be going into the Book of Romans, starting with one and all the way at the end. And when we finish Romans all those chapters, I will then be going to the very beginning. The thing that started it all will be going in Genesis, and we're going to read through the Pentateuch until we get to Deuteronomy. After that, we're going to go back to the Gospels and the book of Mark, because I think it's a good idea every now and then uh, just to take a break, go into the other Gospels. Uh, that way, I'm not reading them back to back to back. Eventually, if we ever get all the way to the end of the Old Testament and start at the New. So that's my plan for that. And after we finish Mark, we're going to go to Joshua and finish with Esther to go through all the historical books. And then we're going to go through the book of Matthew. When that is finished, I'm going to start back up with Job. And we will finish the entire Old Testament up to Malachi. And from there, we're going to finish the entire Bible from John to Revelation. Now, obviously, this is something that's going to take years to do. But personally, I welcome that challenge. And I hope you do as well. And with all that in mind, God bless you on accordance to his will and not mine. And allow me one more time to remind you, let nothing move you.